everybody. So today we are moving into our ancient Greek time period. Um, you'll notice this is probably one of the longer PowerPoint slides for the course. And that's just because most of what we know now in Western art and Western art history comes from the Greeks. So there's a lot to talk about and not to mention they span a long, um, a long range of years in history. So we're going to talk about a few different time periods in ancient Greece. So let's get started. So we're going to start off with some historical context. You kind of have an idea of where we're going. Now, um, if you'll remember last time, we talked about the ancient Aegean world and we talked about Mycenae. We also talked about King Minos and the island of Crete and his labyrinth palace. And we talked about the Trojan War. So we've covered a lot that is really important to today's chapter and today's content because it was the kind of beginning of ancient Greek um, culture. So today we're moving into the actual time of the ancient Greeks where we think that um, today we value the art history so much. Um, some things that are important to know is that one thing for sure is that the Greeks borrow from the Egyptians. They see what the Egyptians are doing in ancient Egypt, and they borrow from that. And they borrow from Mesopotamia as well. So when you're looking through the PowerPoint, um, if you're following along with the PowerPoint, you'll notice that there are some very strong similarities between ancient Egyptian and ancient Mesopotamian. Um, and you'll see that showing up in Greek art. Now, they do take those influences and create their whole new culture, this whole new kind of artistic tradition. And this artistic tradition will lead us into the foundation of Western art history, um, all the way up until Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. So we're going to start probably by talking about the most important art historical contribution we have from ancient Greece. And that would be from their contribution of the Greek temple. And this is the longest and most profound impact we have, especially on later architecture. And if you were to go to Washington, D.C. today, you would see bits and pieces of Greek architectural elements showing up in many of our well-known D.C. monuments. Um, and even if you go to a Capitol building, um, the Capitol building in Austin, for instance, in Texas, you'll see those elements as well. Now, I've included a map for you guys so you can kind of reorient yourself with ancient Greece and where we are in each little section of today's discussion. But if you move down to slide five, we're going to talk about the main ideals of the Greek world. And the first ideal that the Greeks are really fascinated with is a concept called humanism. And basically humanism means that you are an individual and you matter. And you have something to contribute to society and to the world. And this is kind of new because in the past, people have thought of themselves more as one of a unit, one of a group, one of the, the community. And now we kind of see this, this emergence of the individual. And I will touch on that more in just a second and how that relates to philosophy. Now, the ancient Greeks are what we call a republic. And that is a state in which power is held by elected representatives. And so we in the United States are, sorry, my dogs playing with their two toy in the background. Um, we as the United States are a republic as well. So we elect our officials and our officials represent us. We are a democratic republic. 
um, in the Greek world was very similar. That is where we get our system. The next thing that's really important addition to humanism and the concept of a republic is philosophy. So we have philosophers like Plato and Socrates who are exploring concepts about ourself and our world and asking questions that have never been asked before. And that is a huge trademark of the ancient Greek world. The next thing you need to know is that Athens is the symbol of Greece. That if you look at the map on slide four, you'll see that Greece is so much more than Athens, and Athens is just a small little little place within this huge um, collection of islands in this Peloponnesus. And Athens is the whole symbol. And so whenever you think about Greece in the classical world, you think about Athens. Um, a highlight that we recognize today from ancient Greece that we see every, you know, two to four years are the Olympics. And that is a Greek tradition. This is a hallmark of the Greek world and it has persisted for thousands of years. And the Greeks valued athletes. And you may say they valued um, the mind and the thought. You see that with philosophy and art and historians who come from the Greek world but they also valued athleticism. And to be an ideal person, the Greeks believed you had to be of sound mind and sound body. Now, fun fact, the first Olympics were actually held in the nude and the Greeks would perform athletic events in the nude. Um, thank God that's changed, right? Since, since the Greeks. Um, and if you'll move to the next slide, you can see that I've included a family tree for you guys of all the Greek gods and goddesses, and it goes back to the very beginning. And if you notice at the very top of the family tree, if you're, if you're following along with the slides, that in the beginning there was chaos and there was nigh. So there was chaos and there was nothing. And then you start to follow down, and eventually you'll find names you're familiar with, like Athena and Apollo. Now... The Greeks valued their culture above all else, and they refer to themselves as the Greeks in any writings you read, um, or the Hellens, because they are on the Hellenistic, um, Hellenistic era, the Hellens, the Greeks is how they say it there. Um, and anybody else is called or referred to as a barbarian. So if you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. There's no in-between. Um, when it comes to their culture and their religion, though, their gods and their goddesses are very distinct, and they have these personalities that are humanistic. And while they're ideal and they're immortal and they're powerful, they have flaws. They get jealous. They make bets that are bad. They interfere in things they shouldn't. They are the human ideal in an immortal form, but they have their, they have their hiccups along the way. So if you look... Over the next few slides, I've broken down for you guys major gods and goddesses in the Greek world. And so first I would like to introduce you to Hera. And Hera is the sister of Zeus, but Hera is also the wife of Zeus, and she is the goddess of marriage. I'll let you guys analyze that one on your own. And then in addition to Hera, we have Poseidon, who you guys will recognize as the the man with the trident and the trident of the three um, prongs. And 
Poseidon is the god of the sea and of the ocean, and he controls waves and storms and earthquakes. And he is known to be very jealous, and he interferes with human um, human wars and human problems constantly. Then we have Ares, and Ares is the god of war, and he is the son of Zeus and Hera, and he is the lover of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite, we know, is the goddess of love and beauty. And she's the daughter of Zeus and Diane. And Diane is a goddess of springs and caves. And so she's not related completely to her brother Ares, only a half-sibling, I guess. Um, Athena is another female goddess. She is a goddess of wisdom and warfare. And she's actually not born of... Um, of human connection. She's born one day, Zeus has a really bad headache. And then all of a sudden a giant egg forms on Zeus's head and cracks and out pops Athena. And then we have Apollo and Apollo is the God of light and music. And he's the son of Zeus and Leto. And Leto is a daughter of a Titan and the Titans lived before the gods. And there's a long story about the Titans and the gods and how the Olympian, the gods we know as the Greek gods, the Olympians take over from the Titans. But if you'll notice, there's a pattern here that Zeus does not participate in monogamy because I've told you of a few different children of his that are from someone other than Hera. And if you scroll back and you look at the family tree of Zeus, you'll see that he has a few different layers that are showing up, a few different descendants. And then we also have some non-Olympian gods, which means they don't live on Mount Olympus. And the most famous of the most, um, the most famous of the non-Olympian gods would be Hades. And Hades, if you've ever seen the Disney movie Hercules, um, actually you should probably go watch it because it would make all of this um, make so much more sense to you because for Disney, they tame it down quite a bit, but it's very accurate in the, the, the depictions of the gods and their attributes and their personalities. And Hades is the god of the underworld, and he's like banished down and kind of tricked into it by his brother, who is Zeus. And he never resides on Mount Olympus, and he's very jealous, and he interferes a lot as well, because the more souls he collects, the better you know things are for him. And then the last god I want to talk about is Dionysus. And Dionysus is the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. And he was the god of wine and basically good times. And if there's a party going on, you can bet Dionysus is there. And if you're looking, if you're interested in mythology and you want to look into some extra readings, then I would definitely say to, to pursue Dionysus and his, his exploits. All right, so now that you have a very rudimentary basis of the understanding of the religious system of the polytheistic gods in ancient Greece, we're going to move into our first time period. Our first time period is the geometric period, or we call it the orientalizing period. It's just kind of this period of change, but you can remember it because of that geometric word. You're going to see a lot of art that is shape-based, um, shape not a lot of figurative or um, actual depictions of people in this art. And this period is from 900 to 600 BCE, so it's about a 300-year period. 
So this period starts with the destruction of the Mycenaean palaces. And if you'll remember back, Mycenaeans were the warriors. And they had created that fortress, and they had made these cyclopean walls where the walls have huge stones that the Greeks think that only a Cyclops could have built. And those are destroyed. And powerful kings lose their power. And that's because some individual tribes come in and disrupt things. There's not as much cohesion when it comes to kingdoms. And with this destruction, we lose a lot of knowledge. We don't know how to cut stones to build. We don't know how to construct a citadel. We don't know how to paint frescoes, like the bull leaping fresco we looked at last time. And we don't know how to sculpt stone. So this is really kind of a mini dark ages in ancient Greece. Um, the population dies off. We, we lose a lot of people. It's a, an impoverished time. And they kind of close themselves off to the outside world. And when you close yourself off to the outside world, you, leave, you lose that knowledge base and the influence that comes with being connected to other cultures and other civilizations. Now, if you look at slide 15, you'll see an example of a geometric artwork. Um, before we jump into it too much, though, I want to talk about a few things. Um, we are talking about 900 to 600 BCE. And this is whenever Homer writes down the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I told you last time that it was around the 1200s BCE. So 300 years prior to 900 when we start this period. So really, if Homer's not writing until the 700s, he's writing about something that happened 500 years before. You know, I'm going to say happened. He's writing about something that theoretically happened 500 years before. So we're a little removed from that, and it's only been an oral tradition up until this point. So from the times of the Trojans until this time, the 700s, when Homer writes it down, it's just been passed down orally. And if any of you have a, a I think of my grandmother, because every time my grandmother tells a story, it gets more exaggerated and more extreme, and details change a little bit, and you're trying to make it sound a little better, um, a little more exciting. So you can imagine how the story of the Trojans may have evolved over 500 years of oral tradition, being told by different people over and over again. Um, but at the point of this, this artwork that you see on this slide, we're about 500 years past the time of the ancient Trojans. And so if you'll move on to slide 16, it'll tell you that this is called the geometric crater. Now, I'm an art historian, and I'm going to admit that we're not the most creative when it comes to naming things that don't already have a name. And so a crater is actually just the type of pot this is. And craters are used to store various things in the ancient world, oils, foods, things like that. Um, and so we've literally just called this geometric because the shapes are geometric to us, and it's the geometric period. A geometric crater, which is basically like shape pot, shape pot. Um, but it should be easy to remember for you guys. So if you look closely, you'll see geometric patterns surrounding the top. And then in the middle bands, we call the, the line segments, the sections, we call those bands or registers. Um, they have animals and figures in them. And this crater is actually over three feet tall, which is a pretty substantial pot. And it's our earliest example of the Greeks actually painting figures or, or human figures, people. 
We call the pattern across the top of the pot the key pattern. It's a Greek motif, and it shows up over and over and over again. So you'll see it um, everywhere, actually. As you, After you take this class, you'll start to recognize these patterns that are used in textiles today, in clothing, tile work, things that are repeated and borrowed from the ancient Greeks. Now, on the next slide, I have an interesting little sculpture for you guys. It's called Heracles and Nessos, but there's a question mark there because we're not completely sure that that's what this is. This is our assumption. Now, this is a very small statuette. It's about four and a half inches tall, so it would fit in the palm of your hand. And it shows Nessos, who is a centaur, which means that he is half man and half horse. And then we think that the figure standing in front of Nessos is Hercules, and he's nude which would be our Greek ideal. The Greeks believe that the gods created the body in perfection and that the human body nude is the ideal is the ideal of beauty. And so athletes, heroes, a lot of times are portrayed nude. Now we can't be for sure who their identities are, but this is who art historians are led to believe this is. And there's a little bit of a story behind this. And I'm going to jump back to Disney's Hercules because... That's what I'm thinking about today, I guess, as I'm doing this podcast. So in Disney's Hercules, Hercules falls in love with Megara. And at one point, she is being attacked in the movie by a centaur named Nessos. So Disney gets that right. Now, what Disney gets wrong is that Hercules and Meg are engaged, or newlyweds even, and they reach a river. And Hercules can't cross with Meg. And so this centaur, Nessos, volunteers to carry Meg across the river and then come back and carry Hercules. And he carries Meg across the river and then proceeds to assault her. And then there is a battle that ensues and Hercules defeats Nessos. So it's actually a very dark story compared to what Disney portrays. Um, so if you look closely, you can see that Nessos has his hand on Hercules and it looks like they may be about to fight, but it's a very stiff, rigid um, not super realistic depiction of the scene. Very early art, right? Very early figurative art. So let's jump down to geometric sculpture in stone form. So if you look at the next slide on slide 18, you will see a sculpture of a woman. And it will remind you of ancient Greece and ancient Mesopotamia because of her stance. She's very stoic. She looks like she's standing on two feet facing forward. She has a very archaic look to her face. There's no sense of movement at all. And it's very small, um, usually made out of ivory or stone. And you can see the, the influence. But if you look, it has a very special name, and that's called a kore. A kore, K-O-R-E, is the Greek word for young maiden. So if you were to Google that word right now, kore sculpture, you would see thousands and thousands of sculptures called a kore because it literally just means young female. And I actually remember taking an art history class in undergrad where the professor wanted us to identify 500 different kore, and I still have nightmares about it today. And I would never do that to you guys. But I do want you to know that kore means young female. This particular one is called the Lady of Oxir, which is usually named after where it's held today and what museum and what city she's located in. 
Um, but it's important to note that there is that influence of the East, of Mesopotamia and Egypt, and the concept of sculpture will change so drastically over the next, the next few sections. So we're going to stop there for now. I'm trying to break these up because it's a lot of content. So the next podcast will pick up with archaic art, and I'll meet you guys there. Thank you.